in Greek mythology, there's a man named Sisyphus, the tyrant infamous for mistreatment of guests, trickery, greatest being cheating death twice. Uh, As punishment, the gods forced him to roll an immense boulder up a hill only for it to roll back down every time it neared the top, repeating for eternity. Now, I start with this fictional mythological story because Sisyphus is, according to legends, the founder of Corinth and his first king. That gives you a little bit of the city's background, but that image of the king condemned on that hill would endure in Western civilization. More recently, Albert Camus saw in it the absurdity of human existence. I wonder if Paul knew of it, and if he did, what did he think about it? It's not hard for him, uh, hard for us to imagine him studying the culture of Corinth as he did with the culture of Athens. Did the apostle ever think during his time there, these folks have to decide whether they're going to imitate King Sisyphus or King Jesus? Or maybe later he said to himself, I feel like Sisyphus, going over the same problem over and over and over again. Here I go again. I have to pick up the rod of discipline, correct them again. Now we'll get to share in Paul's pain or be at the end of his stick, um, just or both maybe, as we start 1 Corinthians today. And as is the case typically with the new sermon series, I need to discuss at least some background information. I'll do that for about 10 minutes here. It's sort of like, a, I don't know, a pre-sermon outline. I'll summarize some information under two headings, Paul's journey to Corinth and Paul's letters to Corinth. And sorry, I'm going to have to be selective here. I can't give you all the details. Uh, for, so, First, how did Paul end up there in Corinth? The best way to answer that is to go read the book of Acts yourself. If you do that, you'll find that. There's an amazing conversion story of Paul. He was formerly a persecutor of the church of God until Jesus stopped him in his tracks. His plans to round up the Christians of Damascus, bring them bound uh, back to Jerusalem. Remember, that came to nothing. That's because he met the resurrected Jesus, shining brighter than the sun. That heavenly vision changed his life forever. And Paul's conversion to discipleship was also his call to apostleship. Jesus sent him to preach the gospel to the nations, to be a witness to the divine revelation of God's Son. After a few days of reflection, he got to work immediately in the synagogues of Damascus. Then he retreated to Arabia. Next, he headed back to Jerusalem finally. Not the same man who left that city. Just imagine everyone's surprise. Picture the brethren in Judea. They'd hear of this report, a new apostle, born out of due time. Galatians 1.22, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the fate which he once tried to destroy. His enemies became friends, but his former friends became his new enemies. He's on the run again, 
He had to flee Jerusalem and return to Tarsus, his hometown. And we don't hear from him for a few chapters. Not until Barnabas sought him out and brought him to Syrian Antioch. The two led and taught a thriving church there. And it was while ministering there with others that Paul and Barnabas were set apart as formal missionaries with John Mark as their assistant. And I'll talk about two of their journeys now. And Paul didn't get too far in his first journey. Uh, there's the familiar homeland of Barnabas, the island country of Cyprus. Next stop, the regions west of Paul's home region of Cilicia, Pamphylia, Pisidia, and Laconia, places in what's central uh, Turkey today. Good gospel work began at the various cities they visited. I mean, it wasn't easy, of course. John Mark got cold feet. Paul almost died. The Galatians churches had some serious problems. But Paul and Barnabas would testify at the Jerusalem Council how God had worked many miracles and wonders through them among the Gentiles. Now, after that council, Paul wanted to revisit those churches. He founded with Barnabas, but there's a human resource problem, dispute about John Mark, forced them to go their separate ways. Paul chose Silvanus, Silas for his second missionary journey. They began by uh, just going to uh, strengthening already existing churches, picked up a young gifted man named Timothy who joined them. But then Paul and his associates ventured further into new places. Eventually, they were funneled to the shore of the Aegean Sea at Troas. A vision of a Macedonian man compelled them, the team, to cross, and now the apostle of the Gentiles entered Europe. Getting closer to Corinth, so be patient. But first, in the region of Macedonia, there were some major stops at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He then needed some help in reaching the region of Achaia safely. And there's no indication of a successful church plant in the city of Athens. Finally, moving westward, Paul arrives at Corinth. And finally, at the city, there's some early confirmations of fruitful ministry ahead of him. The Lord granted Paul some good companions in the husband-wife duel, duel, Aquila and Priscilla. Even when the unbelieving Jews opposed Paul, many Gentiles believed. And many more would believe. Lord Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision to embolden him for preaching, confirming that he has many people in that city. God's promise of protection and fruit kept Paul going for a year and six months total. Now, of course, it wasn't always easy. One time the Jews rose up in one accord to accuse him of sedition before Gallio, the regional Roman ruler. But Gallio refused to get involved in what he perceived to be Jewish matters. That decision led to some anti-Semitic sentiments. And there was the leader of the synagogue, uh, was just publicly mugged that time. And this synagogue leader was named Sosthenes. In all likelihood, this Sosthenes was converted to Christianity soon afterward, became Paul's disciple, and helped writing 1 Corinthians. 
So after much success in ministry at Corinth, it was time for Paul to get moving again. So now let's talk about those letters Paul wrote to stay in touch with them. And here's a quick illustration before I go on. Now, say you dig up some school records from a principal's office at some old institution, and then you find a thick, heavy folder labeled with the name of one particular individual student, right? Let's call him Corey. Uh, Before you open Corey's file, you might guess between two possible conclusions. One, this kid must be a star. He must be a well-behaved, studious role model for others. Surely in here there's much praise and accolades written about him. Or two, Corey's a troublemaker. He's wild, inattentive. He leads others astray. Here in the stacks of papers are referrals for discipline, reports from guidance counselors, formal notices to the parents, etc., etc., etc. Well, with the Corinthians, we're leaning more towards this uh, second case, the troublesome Corey. Paul wrote a church with potential, but it's a church filled with problems. They were growing, but they were growing pains. Paul's hearing a lot of this during his third missionary journey while stationed not too far away at Ephesus. His concern for them led to his correspondence with them. And he'd have to write them multiple times. Um, 1 Corinthians 5.9, you'll see later as we go through it, but even if you turn to it now, you'll see how 1 Corinthians was not really the first letter to the Corinthians. What we know so well as 1 Corinthians in our Bibles alludes to an earlier letter Paul wrote. And then we read in chapter 7, verse 1, that the saints of Corinth wrote him back with some questions and concerns. You can make some good guesses about those topics. You'll, learn, uh, you'll find scattered throughout the rest of the book, the letter, this phrase that works as a section divider, now concerning this, now concerning that. I'll talk about, uh, more about the structure later. Now, I'm tempted to talk more about Paul's letter writing activity with the Corinthians that took place after 1 Corinthians, but I think it's a little too much for now. Maybe you can ask Phil Gerbato about that since he taught 2 Corinthians uh, during the monthly men's Bible study. I think that's enough introduction. So I'll provide more background info as I go week by week. I think for now we have enough to cover the first few verses. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place Call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, 
so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Structurally speaking, we have some formal features of a typical uh, letter. Even though we're far from Paul in time and space, we share common conventions of letter writing. We got addresser, addressee, and introductory greetings. After that, it was Paul's custom to stop for Thanksgiving. In a few of these letters, there's also a blessing declared. And this letter is no exception to that standard outline, addresser, addressee, greetings, and thanksgiving. But even as Paul follows such skeletal structures, there's a lot of meat on the bones if you get my drift. So don't rush through them. Chew and savor. I mean that even in these first few words, you got doctrine and teaching. I also know three principles for our spiritual growth. To make it even simpler, note the three instances. You see the punctuation mark period. One's at the end of verse 3, another at the end of verse 8, and one more at the end of verse 9. So here are three descriptions of believers that will identify us with the Corinthians and others in Christ's body. You might call them the three calling cards of Christians. First, be reminded that you're called for sanctity by faith. Be reminded that you're called for sanctity by faith. That's verses 1 to 3. Secondly, be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. Be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. That's verses 4 to 8. Thirdly, be assured that you share intimacy with God by promise. Be assured that you share intimacy with God by promise. That's verse 9. If you just want three words, sanctity, sufficiency, intimacy. That's great features of the Christian life. But first be reminded that you're called for sanctity by faith. Again, don't let the routine way Paul begins his letters lull you to sleep. There's good stuff here in verses 1 to 3. I think it helps if we deal with constants and variants. By constants, I mean that there's some features here that you'll see elsewhere. By variants, I mean there are certain ways that Paul describes himself and the Corinthians that are unique to their relationship and circumstances. I'm going to start out of order with verse 3. That's the constant. The word pair of grace and peace is a standard greeting found in most of Paul's letters. Commentator Ben Witherington says, quote, The standard uh, Greek greeting was kyrene, which just happens to be from the same root as the word charis, which we translate as grace. The standard Jewish greeting was, of course, shalom, or peace. Paul combines the two standard greetings in order to properly 
greet both the Gentiles and the Jews in his audience. So we learn right here from onset that there is no grace. There is no peace apart from God. More on grace in verse 4. But first, we, let's go back to verses 1 to 2 for the variance in contrast to the constants in verse 3. Now, before dwelling on the calling of the Corinthians, Paul speaks of his own calling to be an apostle. As seen in Acts and Galatians, Paul didn't seek this out. He didn't decide on it as a college major. He didn't meet a recruiter at a career fair saying, you want to be an apostle? Quite the opposite. Jesus appeared to Paul abruptly to change his life. Left to his own, Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. By God's will, he's called for apostleship to go to the Gentiles, appointed to be their preacher and teacher. It was only by God's grace that Paul was who he was. And even if he's the least worthy of the apostles because of his past, he still owns rights and privileges. He yields authority. That's why he's distinguished from Sosthenes in the second half of verse 1. There are certain positions in church that are not open to everyone. To be an apostle, you have to to have seen the resurrected Jesus with your own eyes. You have to be sent by him directly. That draws a hard line between Paul and Sosthenes. But whilst Paul and Sosthenes differ, they jointly share the role of the addressers of this letter. And as I said earlier, my guess is that Sosthenes is that synagogue ruler who got mugged in public. He has succeeded Crispus earlier, converted to Christ at some point, joined the Corinthian church, and was by Paul's side at Ephesus. Moving on from the addressers to the addressees, we have here the main emphasis on calling. This is where we see the heart of that call for sanctity. The movement in verse 2 is from specific to general. Um, a, specific, a specific church is identified. We're talking not everywhere or anywhere, but the church of God at Corinth. And by the way, that word for church left to its own simply means assembly. By itself, it has no special traits. But when it's referred to as the church of God, when it's composed of those who's sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's when it's special. It would set itself, set apart from other assemblies and groups and interest groups. But now let's stop and ask, what does sanctity mean in my outline, and what does sanctified mean in the text? Sanctify means make holy. Okay, what does holy mean? It means set apart. What does it mean to set apart? Well, we do this all the time. When we receive an important letter or a heartfelt Christmas card from our loved ones, we cherish and set them apart because they're dear to us. We may have our silverware for our day-to-day dining, but then there's that expensive tea set, a family heirloom passed down from our grandparents maybe. We keep that safe and secure and bring them out only for special occasions. 
Well, in a similar way, we're set apart by God through Christ Jesus who died for us and saves us. This is what's known as positional sanctification. It's foundational for progressive sanctification as we live up to the call of sanctity we receive by faith. How important is this calling of God? As we go through this letter, it'll be evident that instead of influencing the world, the world was influencing the Corinthians. They, and we do too, constantly need reminders of our identity in Christ. More important than the call of duty, the call to service, is the call for sanctity. In addition to sanctity, as a sort of a side point, I also want to talk about another word that might seem strange to our ears, Catholicity. You know, as Protestant evangelicals, we probably don't use that word very often, and we're wary of it. But as long as we detach Catholic from Roman, make it a lowercase c, and understand its original meaning, I'm not personally completely against using it. Catholic at its root means according to the whole. So we're talking about the universal church. Practically speaking, when we see a congregation that's evangelical, striving to teach and live by God's word, we can, within certain bounds, decide to partner with them or work alongside them, help them out. And today's passage promotes that idea. At the middle of verse 2, as Paul specifies that the Corinthian believers are called by faith, the apostle opens up the conversation to include believers from different places. All who call on the name of Jesus Christ are called to be saints. In other words, hey, Corinthians, y'all aren't the only Christians in the world. You're not the only ones called for sanctity by faith. As he'll say later in chapter 14, the God's word is not only for your church, right? There's other churches that are trying to live by God's word. It seems like some churches today need to hear this message and realize that they don't stand alone in a vacuum. They need to grasp both the local and the universal body of Christ. Now, these are good lessons for believers everywhere, but let me stop to address those who are not of the faith and not joined to the universal church. I urge you to call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord today. Through him, experience grace and peace from the Father. I talk to, you know, you asking yourself, are you deceiving yourself? Maybe you think, I don't need grace. I don't need peace. My life is fine. Who cares about holiness? I'm content. But consider now the moral demands God has placed on you. There's a payday that's coming, judgment day. The Bible is clear that holiness is not a mere outward appearance. He desires truth in the inward parts. He wants purity in thought, word, and deed. And the Lord has given us in his word to know how to know specifically the true meaning of sanctity and sacredness. His law is holy, just, and good. And by that law, there's the knowledge of sin. 
We understand what sin is, what coveting is, what stealing, idolatry, lying means. Our Lord Jesus came and he's given us perfect insight into these commandments. He revealed how we commit adultery in our hearts and murder with our hateful intentions. So it's clear that we're guilty, unholy, profane. Now, how do we get right with this holy God? How do we become holy saints when we're such unholy sinners? Well, that's where Christmas comes in, or God sent his son, born of a virgin, as God's holy one. We could not be, and what we could not be, he was and is. What we could not do, he did and does. Jesus was born under the law and fulfilled it. He was tempted yet without sin. He was perfect. But then he went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin that we committed. God's wrath held itself. He was buried, rose on the third day. After many days of proving his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Before it's too late, repent and trust in Jesus. Turn away from self-righteousness and selfish living. Hear these promises from the Lord. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Call upon the name of Christ Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if we call his name, we'll be called his saints. The Holy One of Israel gave his holy servant Jesus so that we might become holy brethren. And now we live for a different purpose. As he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. And we can only live like this only because of grace. The strength to follow his commands could never come from us. And that gets us into the second calling card of believers. Be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. Be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. I love studying grace. I hope you do too. I love talking about grace. I love singing about grace. Like when we evangelize, like that's the favorite part, right? Talking about sin and wrath, and finally we get to that grace part, and we're like, phew, right? And even familiar songs like Amazing Grace refreshes my soul today, you know? Just, it captures how we're truly made sufficient by grace. Not only does John Newton, the writer of that song, speak of how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, he goes on to exalt. Grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. In other words, gracious God has got you covered better than the best insurance company. That's a reason to join Paul in thanksgiving. We give thanks because we've been given grace. That's what we see in verse 4. In verse 5, it's interesting that Paul chose the word enrich 
Now, are we talking about wealth or prosperity here on earth? No. Now, it's true that in Christ, God freely gives us all things in future glory. The meek and Jesus are blessed to inherit the earth. But greater, more immediate, available right away, are these spiritual riches. We're talking about riches in all utterance and knowledge, things that really matter. Being enriched like this is better than winning the lottery. Believers have won in life because we, want, we have eternal life. We won the moment we surrendered to Jesus. And if you look at verse 6, it was the moment we accepted that testimony about Christ. That's the message of him and him crucified. Paul declared it and the Corinthians believed it. They confirmed it and they confirmed it by faith. The objective truths of the gospel were subjectively and personally received by faith. Again, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. But God was not only rich in in mercy at the time of salvation. You see that in verse 7. The Lord's providing for you until the end. While the Corinthians eagerly wait for the second coming of Jesus, they're given spiritual gifts to use in the church. By the way, this is another prelude of things to come in this letter. In fact, a big chunk of 1 Corinthians deals with this topic. You can read ahead if you like, but I'll just say for now that the proper use of these gifts must be for the edification of the church. Moving on to verse 8, there are even more reasons to be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. Just as the body of Christ does not lack in spiritual gifts, they do not lack in their spiritual journey. Because believers confirm Christ's testimony at the beginning, Christ will confirm believers until the end. As much as we battle and struggle with sin on earth, we'll stand blameless at judgment. On that day, we will we'll reach our full potential as God's children as we see Jesus. 1 John 3, 2 says, We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Grace had brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Here's another song that you can sing with thanksgiving. Complete in thee, no more shall sin. Grace had conquered, reigned within. Complete in thee, each one supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are, among thy chosen will I be at thy right hand. Complete in thee. God is rich in mercy. He loves us with his great love. With him is abundant redemption. Sing and be grateful that you're enriched for sufficiency by grace. One more verse and one more calling card for today. Be assured that you share intimacy with God by promise. And I'll be quick here. Yet another reason to rejoice and be thankful is in verse 9. Not only is God holy, lavish, and generous, he's faithful to keep his promises. We return to the theme of calling here. We're called into fellowship of his son. And please don't restrict that word fellowship merely to some function, event, or a scheduled activity. 
so much more than that. It's a deep, meaningful, committed relationship. When we were called for sanctity, we were also called for intimacy. And that seems simple enough of a principle, but take one more look at verse 9, and I find it interesting how it's put together. You know, often we speak of drawing near to the Father, having access to him through the Son. But look here, the emphasis here is how the Father calls us to draw near to his Son. The best gift that the Father gives to us is Jesus. He was sent as Emmanuel, God with us, to have an intimate relationship with him. Like that old Puritan prayer says, In him you have given me so much that heaven can give no more. And this is why Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Because we have a relationship with him. Father Christmas has got nothing on our Father of lights. Our Father did not spare his son, gave him to us as the greatest gift, greatest treasure. So let's acknowledge that as we sing our final song. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in him no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Let's pray.